Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. Welcome back, listeners, to the Food and Faith Podcast. We know it's been a little while, and we hope that you are doing well. We know this is going to be put out in the middle of a world that is vastly different than the last one that we put out. But uh, that's not the only thing that's going to be different because today's interview is going to be a little different. I don't know if I'm flying solo technically or not. I am in terms of the interview because our guest for the day is our very own Anna Wolfenden. Um, And we're really excited to have her on the pod to talk a little bit about her book. So what is up, Anna, and how are you? Well, it's very funny. I told my husband this morning I'm about to go be interviewed on my own podcast. So this is a new adventure for both of us. I noticed that we still use the we are excited and but I don't but I think I am being interviewed so there's a whole well, I, like you know well, I know the interviewer is excited are, 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 are you excited <laughs> I'm excited then, 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 um, it's a we. <laughs> then it's a we so um yeah it's a strange world we're all walking through and um I've I've missed being able to chat with you Sam and and with our guests and we'll look forward to getting back in the the swing of things as we're figuring out how to do our many jobs in virtual ways. Um, Interestingly, the podcast is something we already do virtually, but I feel like everything else in life has um, been taking, taking the space that we would normally use for, for this work. So I'm glad we carved out some space to talk together today. And uh, you, how are you holding up? I am doing all right. Um, we were just talking before before we hit record that like I'm kind of at that point where I'm over this like it's fun for two weeks it, you know in terms of not fun but you, know, you understand like it's it there there's an excitement when you have these kind of things happen especially in church life and there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm that goes into it in terms of how are we going to attack this problem and now I'm just like I just want to sit in my video my basement and play video games like that's kind of where I'm feeling at today. Um, yeah. But in terms of food and faith, um, the thing that is saving my soul right now are our little baby pigs. So I, mm. um, so I get to go out of the house every day over to my in-laws' place where we get to where we get to hang out with the pigs, and that is fifteen minutes to twenty minutes of bliss. So, um, That's great. So I do have the chance to get out of the house, maintain safe social distance from my in-laws who are all kind of at risk. But to be able to go to the barn, and I've talked to a lot of farmers about this, the idea that we can go to the barn. And even just talk to the pigs or the cows or the goats or whatever for a little while is better than is better than nothing. So I'm 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 hanging in there. Wow. I actually just posted on Instagram this morning a little picture of little seedlings that I'm starting in the kitchen and said this is the antidote I need to the morning news every morning. It's like, yes, I'll listen and read the news, but then I need to go see what's growing. Um and you know, it's interesting, I think in this intersection of food and faith, we're, we're learning how to do church in a different way collectively, which is mm-hmm. something that some of us have already been talking about for a while, but now everyone's learning how to do church in a different way. And we're also suddenly realizing how important our food systems are collectively and seeing so many people who are planting gardens and baking bread. And, you know, part of that is maybe people have different sets of time and space to do that. And I also think there's this, there's this return to some of these basics. Um, and so I'm really curious, you know, I think we are all, and the church is going to be shaped by this time that we are spending 
um, in, you know, distance and pandemic world. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what's going to, what's going to emerge from that. Um, I certainly feel my, I mean, I always in the spring have this like, you know, must plant things and get things in the ground. Oh, and <laughs> I don't have a garden, but I keep, I keep looking up. We, we live in an apartment building, an old house that has three apartments. And I keep looking at me like, okay, so I could get some of those canvas pots and, and get some <laughs> soil. And I think I could fit some there and, and maybe I could just sneak a little bit of kale underneath along with the daylilies. And um, so I'm looking forward to figuring out how to how to grow things in small spaces. I have to send you one of the African violets that just keep propagating around my office right now. So that'll at least be <laughs> something. That's um, great. <laughs> but yeah, to fly in this, I actually think what you say is really important. We are discovering that what is old is new again. Um, and we are all of a sudden being faced with all kinds of all kinds of things in our food systems, in our social systems, in our healthcare system, um, and we are rediscovering things. And you've you just mentioned that you know there are those of us who have been advocating for changes in the way that we think about faith for a while now, um, and that speaks really well to sort of where I want to begin this interview about your book. This is God's table. Um, the first thing I thought about as as I was reading through the book is that the food movement has finally arrived at some point where we have stories to tell. It's not just an idea. We've actually, we've actually had this micro generation where, you know, we've actually, we actually have some stories, we have some experiences, some su successes and some failures. And right off the bat, I want to say that your story has been a formational story anecdotally up until now for so many of us. Um, and as we've gotten to interact with each other and with people in our circles, um, your story continues to inspire. And so as these stories kind of bubble up to the surface, I wanted to begin by asking you, why tell your story? And what makes this particular story unique to so many of the stories that we've interacted with around food and faith, ecology, dinner, so on and so forth? Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe part of why I tell it is because I want it not to be unique. Um, one of the things that has felt true to me about this journey of planting the Garden Church and telling its story from before, before it was a thing, when it was just an idea, was not that I think this is the next thing that everyone should do. That was, was never, never the goal. I don't think everyone should do farm churches, garden churches. Um, but instead that it could be a, a canvas or a playground or a laboratory, a place for us to ask some questions that I think are important questions for the church and communities as a whole to ask and to experiment with those questions in different ways. So what does it mean to be church? How do we reconnect with our food? How do we reconnect with each other? What does liturgy look like and mean in different settings? What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to be faithful in this generation? So asking some of those questions in a, some different settings, I think is something that is for the whole church. And I see, um, I've always, you know, again, from before it became a thing, it was clear to me that the Garden Church's purpose certainly was to do, to serve where, it was planted in that community, but that another piece of it was to share the stories, to share what we were learning, to share what was working, what was not working, to share the 
humbling moments to share the, you know, joyful moments, not because I thought, and I still don't think that everyone needs to copy it per se, but because having that laboratory to ask those questions um, could be of service to the broader church. Um, One of the values that we held from the very beginning was that we were a learning organization. And that meant that we were, we were constantly learning, but also that we were wanting to go the extra mile to invite others into that learning with us. Um, So writing, this is God's table, finding church beyond the walls felt like a continuation of that work that after I transitioned out of being on the ground that I still, I still was under, you know, God's call and contract to keep mm-hmm. telling the story um, and to be able to tell it so that others could enter into their own stories with some different questions and maybe some some inspiration or um, challenge. And I mean that, you know, being inspired and say like, okay, well, let's actually, let's try this. Let's push this a little, a little further to ask these questions in, in the various contexts. Yeah. And I, I think the way you put that is, is really well stated that this book is going to appeal to those who have agrarian slash garden slash environmental leanings, you know, who are interested in that. But I think what's so profound about the food movement and the way that you've captured in your book is that it is a case study in a, in a fuller way of thinking about church and thinking about our communities of faith. And so anybody who's interested in what does the church look like all, all, all the more reason um, to think about this question now in this moment that, that we're in, what does the future of the church look like? Any church leader, anybody who's dreaming about that, thinking about a ministry or an outreach or even an organizational institutional church, has there is so much to be gleaned from this and what's so cool is that it's not theory one of the things that stood out so much for me in your book is how many names are in it um Mm -hmm. and so it is very much an on the ground telling the stories of people this is a lived experience um with all of its successes and failures which we all experience in church life and so i feel like it very much does that. And so wanted to commend it to everyone, you know, who is thinking about the future of the church and wants to do that in a way um, that is unique to them. And we're really grateful that, at least I'm grateful that Garden was unique to you. So catch us up just quickly. I know we've spent time with you, the listeners on the podcast, but describe briefly your own sense of call to plant a church and your own sense of call as to why it needed to be a garden-based or a garden-centered church. Sure. So it's interesting because I I wish that I could tell you like the exact moment of where the idea of the garden church like popped into my brain or my heart. Um, And I really can't, um, which is kind of, it was something I wrestled with while writing the book of like, this is that is like, I don't have that like moment in the story. Um, so, um, but I think in some ways it's, it's more honest because I don't, I don't know if these things, I think they, they evolve and over time. So, um, you know, I, and there's a whole ch- chapter on this whole like background and call and roots mm-hmm. of the book. So people can read, read the long story, but, um, the short story is that coming around the table and communion, Eucharist, Holy Supper has always been like a really, um, pivotal part of my own faith journey. And there've been part of part of my own call to ministry and to ordained ministry has been made clear 
around the table, both in terms of what it invites and also um, in moments where realizing that, you know, in some, my former life and denomination, I couldn't serve at the table because of my gender and because of um, who could be ordained. And so the table has been a part of my own call story for, you know, a couple of decades now. Um, but it was when I was in seminary. So I went back to seminary in my early thirties after serving um, in a lay position at a church um, for, for many years. And I kept circling around food and I got more and more interested in how does the theology of the table and of communion connect with food insecurity and with economic justice and racial justice. And, um, and I kept kind of circling around like, it was like food, church, sacrament, people are actually hungry, like kind of that dance back and forth. Um, And I was also really interested in asking the question about um, economic and, and with that, the intersection of racial segregation, um, you know, Dr. King talks about how Sunday morning is the most racially segregated hour of the week. And of course, it's also often economically segregated as well. Um, and that runs different intersections, um, but, but they're all intertwined. And so trying to think about like, what is a way to not, you know, it's a mammoth mountain, right? But what's a way to put a little crack into the integration of people of class? And um, so I don't remember exactly where the moment, but I do remember sitting across the table at a coffee shop with one of my um, seminary professors and saying, what if we all got our hands dirty? And we were talking about like, what was this church I was going to play it look like? What if, what if we all had our hands in the dirt? And, and would that be, somewhat of a a leveler if you will or something that we could share in common and thinking a lot about also who holds the wisdom around agriculture um and um you know thinking about like well uh, you know immigrant grandmother um probably knows a whole lot more about farming than the young lawyer or the or me you know and um so so that's where it of began to um to grow out of and and then i was really like circling around these questions of how do we reconnect to our food how do we reconnect to the earth how do we reconnect to each other how do we reconnect to god or church or spiritual community and wanted to ask the question like what happens if you try to make those interconnections within the same space um and overlapping spaces See, I feel like that's really interesting. In this way, I feel like we're coming at this from two completely different directions where so much of my interest in agriculture came from my background. Like I had practiced this and saying, wait a second, this has something to offer the larger community. You're coming at this, you know, not necessarily from an ag background, but are saying, wait a second, like all these things are interconnected. Um, One might say more of like thinking around justice issues kind of thing and bringing you back towards this ag piece. And so I'm fascinated by that by that movement in the other direction than what than what I experienced it as as a farmer, um, and I'm wondering, 
like, what was your experience then of, I mean, cause you're, you know, you're theologically trained, you know, you, you can put these pieces, these theological pieces together in your head, but I wanted to talk about the garden a little bit. What was your experience of sort of, what was your gardening experience coming into this and what did you have to learn about being a gardener? And then on top of that, also leading others to garden in such a way that it was at least marginally successful. Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. So yeah, I grew up on a homestead. I grew up with a large garden. Um, I remember my mom was very wise when I've had my first garden. I was, I don't know, five or six and I got a half of a garden bed or a third of a garden bed or something. And, um, I had all these great big dreams of all the things that I wanted to plant. And she also said, how about some radishes and forget me nots, <laughs> which I think was so wise. Cause I was like, we well, you know that, uh, you know, a five-year-old can successfully grow those. Yeah. The, the lavender didn't work out. The other things didn't work out, but those, those worked out. Um, so, and I've always, um, wherever I've lived in my adult life, um, I've, you know, pulled up landscape rock or put little, uh, pots on the, <laughs> on the front porch or whatever I, whatever I have access to. Um, so it's it's definitely in my in my own kind of bones to to garden as much as I can, but yeah. I've mostly lived in apartments and I've lived in places mm-hmm. where I, I can't. Um, and I'm not I'm not an expert. I'm not a farmer. So it was interesting. One of the first things that I did when I got to Los Angeles was to start to look for partners. Um, mm-hmm. So we partnered with a um, a another startup, Green Girl Farms, and um, Farmer Lara was just instrumental in being able to do the the technical side of things. And it was interesting because we were a great team and I felt like because we had a farmer, um, I actually kind of backed off and I at times pretended to know less than I knew in terms of delegation of roles and and helping point people towards, you know, I was doing the spiritual stuff and she was doing the farming stuff. And we both knew that those were intertwined and we worked well together. Um, but it felt important to me to, um, to lean on her expertise and to help people to, to learn and, and grow together. Um, and that was huge. I mean, we probably would have been growing a lot of radishes and forget me not (laughs) singularly involved. Um, and and that was always clear from the start to me that I was I was I knew that I didn't have the expertise needed for that, um, which I think is an important message for our listeners as well. Is that these are not solo efforts or singular efforts. You know, you mentioned that you, in reading the book, there were a lot of other names in there, and those names are like a fraction of the names I wanted to mention. Like I had to cut a lot of yeah. people out and condense because my readers would be like, I can't keep track. Um, so I think that's something that is, you know, my, one of my fears about writing a book is that people are like, you know, people have said like, oh, it's a memoir. And I'm like, it's, it's not a memoir. <laughs> like this yeah. isn't actually my story or the story about me. I'm just the one who needs to tell it because, but it's the story of a community. It's the story of this, this group of people. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, be, being a team in that way was important. Yeah. And, and that really comes through in the book is that, you know, and why I think it's such an important contribution to the literature around church planting and thinking about next gen church is that so much of the so much of the popular kind of instruction that we get on church planting really is the 
knight on the white horse riding in with all the expertise and doing and you know and coming up with everything and being an expert in all things um as i've told keep until many many times we have a savior i'm not it and so it's going to take a and so it's it was it's a it's a it's a really powerful book about planting a church and developing community in and around that church but it rubs 180 degrees against the grain of traditional planting literature and i think that's really where it where its power lies and for me just in the back and maybe it's just in the back of my head but so much of what i read was had a critique by of how we think about organizational church just by what's not there just your approach was so fundamentally different i think and that's it was and it was so empowering to the community that was there and empowering to their stories and to their abilities and their ability to learn and and to grow into something larger so that that was one of the things that just as i was reading it as somebody who has some experience in church just really kind of blew me away wow this is a book about church planting which doesn't sound like anything i've ever read before well, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it's. Um, you know, I've taught a couple courses now on church planting and innovative ministry, and I. I struggle to find the literature because I. You know, I've read all the '90s and 2000s church planting books, and I. Good memories, I, but yeah, not, I, I, st- I struggle <laughs> to. Yeah, well, and I just don't. I don't know um, Emily Scott, who I plug mm. that her book comes out um, in early May about planting St. Lydia's um, Dinner Church in in Brooklyn. But she wrote an article a couple of years ago about um, the difference between mega church and micro church, and I think part of um, part of I think what we get caught up in in the the larger church planting literature is. The idea that the goal is going to be this big mega church, um, usually kind of evangelical, cool worship, in, <laughs> in um, and that's that was never the goal, right? That was that was never the goal, and I think there there are um, different strategies for different end goals, um, and one of the things that I often said, and I had to repeat to myself too, because you know certainly I can get caught up in, in my own, my own stuff around it, but was that my goal was never to be the, the first face in the portraits on the wall. And, you know, 70 years later, they would say, Oh, our founding pastor, um, church plants, you know, they come and go and it's not, it's not, um, I think if our goal is to institutionalize it, we've maybe missed the point, but instead to say, what's faithful right now? What's faithful right now? How does this collaborative, how is this not about the founder? Yes, it was my job to found it. No, it is not my job to, to save the institutional church or to be the answer to everyone's issue, you know, questions or, um, or problems, which is hard because there are a lot of needs and there are a lot of things that I couldn't do. And that was, continually (laughs) difficult. Um, but I do believe, and I am so grateful to see that, um, the garden church continues to thrive and that's because there are other people who are leading it and that there's a strong community that it's their church. And that was some languaging that I watched really carefully early on. This is one of my, uh, you know, advice to church planters is, 
notice how people refer to the pastor and to the church and continually correct that it's not my church, it's our church, right? It's not, it's not Reverend Anna's, you know, congregation, it's our congregation. And as you see that language shift, um, that there's, there's something that's shifting in the, the ownership of the group. I wanted to ask you about um, the tagline for Garden Church and how it's kind of played out to feed and be fed. And that is a theme that runs throughout this book as I experienced it. And I'm curious how that language developed for you. And if there's a story that maybe you're willing to tell out of the book that explains or demonstrates how this played out in the life of the congregation when you were there. Yeah. So that tagline, I do remember when it came. I was, uh, it was years ago. Um, it might've even been before I finally answered my call to seminary. And I was, um, I had a little, little journal that I still have somewhere, which is why I can remember this happened. Um, and I was in the sanctuary um, in the church that I served in Boulder and praying about what was next. And that little line just came out, feed and be fed. Um, and there's something about the reciprocity of it that we all have something we're hungry for, but we also all have something to offer. And this is something that I think is, um, I've just seen to be really beautiful and transformational, both in the church side of things, but also in the farm and garden piece of things. Um, so at the garden church, um, this was true, you know, six months or so into after starting, it still becomes, it's more and more true today is that um, a number of the congregation members are unhoused or dealing with food insecurity of some kind. Um, and I really, um, I mean, we need feeding programs and I commend those. And I also was um, pushing back about the part within feeding programs that often is the nice church people giving to those poor, hungry people. Yeah. And how do we, how do we make it more um, communal and how do we value both the need that people have and the gifts they have to give? And so it became this, you know, our tagline was really, um, it was a guiding principle and I, and I encouraged everyone who was getting involved that when someone walked through the gate, we had, we had three things, we had three jobs. One was to warmly welcome them. And then the next was to find out what are they hungry for and what do they have to offer? And it, it's interesting because I think for maybe for those of us who are, you know, maybe more stable, middle class, um, maybe we kind of selfishly think about like, well, what am I going to get out of this experience? You know, like, what am I going to get out of church? How's church going to serve me? My experience with so many of our neighbors who were living in, in tents and who were, you know, food insecure was that they spent so much of their time in lines waiting to have to ask for things. And that was hard and draining and, you know, it was, it was a real struggle. And if they walked in and were greeted by name and then asked, what do you have to offer? Will you help? I need your help the faces, I mean, just, just, just light up and, and that, um, people would start to feel like, oh, like I'm valued, not because someone is giving me something, but because I have something to offer. So I tell the story in the book about Jared, who, um, 
he came in and he loved to water and he preferred to water when we would let him use the big hose, which we usually just, we usually didn't have just anybody use the hose, but he learned how to, you know, because we were on strict water restrictions (laughs) and there's ways to water that are uh, more effective than others. Um, But he learned and he had such pride in that. Um, And, um, you know, he's somebody who, who lived in the alley across the street and who um, was, you know, out and about and he had people to, you know, responded to him in very different ways in the community. Right. Um, And he would come in and just his face would just, just light up. And he would say that this is my garden. I water this garden. Mm. And um, what what people will grab onto, like just these very specific tasks that just give them life. Watering is one weeding is another. Some people are just aggressive weeders, but it's so interesting. You watch people's face light up when they can do this one thing. That's so cool. Yeah. Right. And people, you know, and feeling like, and when, when we would have the meal, so the, the rhythm of worship was we'd work together in the garden and then we'd worship together in our, in the garden, out in the sanctuary, outdoor sanctuary. And then we would eat together this big community meal. And we would always talk about where did the food come from? And yes, the food was primarily cooked in homes of those of us who had homes and kitchens, but we always made sure to talk about when we used produce that was grown in the garden and refer back to like, oh, that's that Swiss chard we've all been watering. Or like, you know, Dad, I remember when you like planted the artichokes or, you know, whatever the, the pieces were so that there was a connection to say, like, we all were part of this meal. We were all part of, of cultivating this meal together. And we're all going to sit down and eat it together. And that was the other thing is that this big community meal. It was family dinner, you know, church, church supper. It was a time where we were all, we were all eating together in the same place. Mm. But again, you do such a good job of bringing stories of individuals into that space. So it's not just this sort of faceless garden that happens in the middle of everything. It really is a labor of love, not just between human and soil, but between human and human. Um, And so, and that, that is just over, everything. I do want to also ask you, and maybe this is my pastor hat. So if this is not interesting to some folks, forgive me for this, but this idea of just this, this story being a wash in some themes, I was drawn um, and was just immediately, immediately absorbed into the book with this image that you used right at the beginning of anointing your table. It was a stump, correct? It's been a little while. I have pandemic head, so I'm trying to remember what it was that you anointed. Yeah, it was a big cedar stump. Big cedar stump. Or a a round of cedar. It's I've been corrected that it wasn't really a stump. It was a it was a round of a of a a log. (laughs) But we're using the word stump. I'm 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 not using stump in a in a pejorative sense. Yes. And use that right at the beginning, and that sets such a profound tone. And one of the tones that I hear, and this is I think this is a unique spiritual gift that you have, is your your commitment, and you are so dialed in and so creative around ritual. And I wonder how you thought about that as a pastor, the way that you intentionally use ritual. At a time when we're having some conversations about ritual, I mean, even now we're talking about, can we do communion online? Like you're really thoughtful about ritual and that comes through the book a lot. And so I'm, I'm wondering just how you think about that and how you intentionally use ritual to build community. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I am. Um, so one of the, the themes throughout the book is it's so interesting because in some ways it feels completely counter to this virtual world that we're living in right now. Because one of the themes is this incarnational and sacramental nature, right? That there is something powerful that happens with the tangible dirt and soil and food and bread and cup and oil on cedar stump that sizzles in the warm sun, right? Like these, these tactile sacramental pieces. Um, and I miss that. And something that I notice myself needing to keep saying in this strange era of everything being virtual is I do not think the future of the church is a only online church. Like I, I long for the day when we can physically break bread together. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> um, and, and I also think, I, I don't think, I believe that God is present everywhere in all things and is immediately present with each of us. Um, and doing church in a unfamiliar or untraditional setting was an opportunity to continually name that. And it was this opportunity to name that, you know, this empty lot in the middle of the outskirts of Los Angeles could be sacred space and that God was present there. And there was something about those tactile, sacramental, incarnational rituals and acts that did it magically change that space into a church? I don't know. Magic's a weird word. But God was already hanging out, I believe. Mm -hmm. But something does happen when we intentionally name and claim it. Um, so the way we'd start off church every week as part of the um, invocation was we'd unpack our tabernacle or our church in a basket, and we'd take out all the things that we needed. Because what I discovered over time was you actually do need a few things, you know, yes. <laughs> we had a Bible, we had a candle, which we had to figure out different candle holders for with wind and such. And, and, you know, we had a little bowl for the baptismal font, which we would fill every week as that's, that was present, no matter what, whether we were having a baptism or not. Um, obviously the bread and the cup. And so we had these, these physical, tangible things and we named them because it was our way of remembering that God was present with us, is present with us. Um, and so I think in this time of virtual, I have noticed that it's been important for me to light a candle. And when I, you know, when I led dinner church for my college students last night, I had the whole little space set up and I, I had the Bible there and I had the candle and I even baked bread and I said, I, you know, this, this feels hard to, it feels both right and, and painful that does, yeah. I have this bread here, mm -hmm. but we're not going to all share it together, but we can remember together. And I think this tension is one that we, um, we can be actually fed by and learn from in this time of both the longing for the time when we can be physically interacting together but also that reminder that God is pretty willing to show up in creative ways mm -hmm. and that God is willing to make a 
garden in the middle of an empty lot into a sacred sanctuary. And I will tell you that something did change when we consecrated it as a church. It does, doesn't it? It changes it. It actually changes it. Uh And, And part of that is, is that every time I open the gates, I needed to remember this is a church. And every time someone walks through the gates, we remember this is a church. But I think something does does change yeah. when we name and claim something. And I I don't yeah. know if I can explain it, but I believe yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, at, at, at seminary, we always joked about, you know, when you get the magic hands, like you can, you know, when, you, when you're allowed to consecrate the elements and all that kind of stuff. Of course, as a Lutheran background, so our Lutheran listeners will appreciate that. But, and you're right, magic is not the right word, but there's this, there is this thing that, ontologically happens. There is a change of being when the community, to use my evangelical language, which you use, name, name and claim. And we say, here gathers the church. And that, and, and that kind of mystery, I think, is one of the things that we're trying to reclaim. What next generation is going to be is, maybe it's an oversimplification, but the last generation of church planning was was unbelievably, um, unbelievably practical. And I think the next round will, will lean into mysticism, you know, and, and that this idea that there are things happening that we can't fully name and we can't fully wrap our arms around. I mean, think of Carl Rahner who says the next generation Christian will be a mystic or nothing at all. And I think, hmm. I think garden churches and other kind, other kinds of church expression are leaning into that. And that's what you're so good at in ritual is you just claim this. I mean, I, I also think about the image where you were lifting up the the icon of the tree of life and you used an item to drive your congregation towards hope, that it wasn't just about what is here, but that there still is this anticipation that's coming. So this, there's no outline in the book for here's how you do church and all, all, all the cool rituals and stuff, but you do say that be intentional about your rituals. That comes through. And you are so talented at that. Hmm. Well, it's what feeds me and reminds me. And I think it's, for me, it's part of my job as, as ordained clergy is to name it, point to it, claim it, not just for me, but for the community as a whole. And, um, and I think that's a call for, for all of God's people is how do we how do we keep being the church? How do we name and claim that God is present with us? God is gathering us together. God is continuing to call us to love God and love neighbor in community. And that may look different. That will look different in our future as we continue to discover what the church is in this next generation. It certainly looks different right now in this era of coronavirus. And um, I guess my my words to myself every day and and to us collectively is God is not abandoning us in this and God is ready to be present. God is present and God is ready for us to, to name and claim God wherever we are in whatever way that we are gathering. And it doesn't have to be the way we want it for God to be able to be present. You know, like I, I loved I mean, worshiping at the Garden Church was one of my, still is like one of my very favorite things, but it wasn't perfect and it's not the right thing for everybody, right? Like it's not, there's not one way that we can be church. There's not one way that we can claim God's presence. I I tell folks that about keeping to all the time. They're like, can we join? I'm like, 
there's there's a pretty decent chance you're not going to like this. It's not going to be for you, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to exist in the world. I think you're right. I do want to transition a little bit as we as we come to the end of the interview um, to think about what you've learned and how this experience has shaped you. And so your story, I think, is going to be part of the bookshelves and part of the literature of those of us who care about environmental and ag- agriculturally based faith um, for a long time to come. And so. For we who are trying to build on the next generation, you know, uh, along with partners like Garden Church and Farm Church and Keep Until and all, all the things that are happening, what are some of the strengths? And I guess you've talked a little bit about it. Maybe I don't want to ask that. Maybe I want to ask, what are some of the things that need to be worked on? What are some of the weaknesses as you've experienced this? What are some things that we need to get better at? What are some of the things we need to think a little more carefully about? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's kind of a downer of an answer, um, but it feels true to me is we need to figure out our financial models and we need to figure out sustainability. And, um, you know, I don't actually get into this in the book in a, in a big way. Um, but it's something that is asked every time I've ever taught about it or I'm in rooms with pastors, like, and how did you finance it? Um, and you know, whatever it was seven years ago, six years ago, when I came up with the financial model, it felt like it was a step ahead of some of the things that I was seeing and in terms of, you know, building in self-sufficiency and building in um, over time and not assuming that the local congregation would be able to to carry. And there was an incredible generosity from the denomination and from people across the world that gave, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things that happened and, um, and I'm grateful for them. And, finances are tough. And, um, that was, that was one of my hardest parts. Um, you know, learning how to be a fundraiser. Like I didn't want to be a fundraiser. Like that wasn't, I didn't want to do, um, but also really having my deeper concern for the church and, you know, faith-based food movement long-term is, is that sustainability question. And, um, I have some ideas, but I don't have answers. And I feel like it's a, it's an area that it's the next thing we all need to figure out together is what does that look like? Um, and that has questions around clergy. It means there's questions around seminary debt. There's questions around, um, you know, we need fair compensation. We also are trying to figure out how we, how we, uh, make these little startups that are not, we're not expecting to have hundreds of people, right? Yeah. Um, how, how do we integrate those in ways? So I think that's the area we all need to keep learning and teaching one another and exploring together. And I know it's kind of a downer. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's an is, I mean, it is what it is. Um, I think even in, more mainline or, you know, or denominational kind of structures, when we planted churches, even if we never set out to be a mega church, the sustainability was based on bigness. Um, Like, all right, if this church is going to survive, it's got to get big enough in order to support itself, Um, which feels like it's drawing off the same 
the same philosophical models as our economic system, as our healthcare system, as our food system, all of this is being exposed in this moment. And we implicitly said, well, if you're going to be successful, you have to be big. Well, how in the world do we do this when the point is not to be big? I mean, not that there's not room for everyone, but the, you know, even keep until the point was never to be a thousand people. The, it looked healthier at 50 people who care deeply. Like, at least that's how I've always thought about it. And 50 even probably feels big for me. Yeah. And so, but if that's the next generation of the church, yeah, you raise all these wonderful questions about what does that mean for 15 different things that the longer you sit and think about, the more they, they emerge, you know, these questions around clergy, around um, land ownership, like how in the world do you pay a mortgage? <laughs> you know, because yeah. if you're going to farm, you got to have land. Like that's how it works. So, yeah. So you're not wrong. Um, and I don't think it's a downer. I think it's a call to the structures that support church planners to say, hey, y'all are not quite as creative as you need to be in this moment. You're asking us to be creative. You have to match our creativity and yeah. come up with, with solutions to these issues. Yeah. And I think and it also, if you want to be a church that is has people of a lot of different economic backgrounds, um, you know, if half of your membership are living outdoors or couch surfing um they gave generously you know people in our congregation who were were did not have the financial means gave generously of their time and even of their money i mean when somebody would put a dollar in the offertory and i knew that that was like half of the money they had for that day like that dollar was precious and and a lot and our landlord didn't care about how generous that dollar was right so So these are, yeah, I think that the, you know, I think it feels like one of those areas where we're kind of caught between the like, the the now and the not yet in terms of we're trying to operate in a way of leaning into what we guess the kingdom of God would be more like, which would be like, we'd be feeding one another and everyone's welcome and your gifts are honored. And then we also are living in this world of capitalism with, you know, we have our own bills to pay and their church bills to pay. And um, so that tension, I mean, that's, I think that's a tension that obviously we're not alone in faith-based, food-based churches. Like this is a tension we're all dealing with and wrestling with. So yeah, I I think it's, um, I look forward to continuing to explore and see how we can learn together. And I think there are there are growing models and experiments and I think we will, we will build upon one another and we'll, um, together. I think one thing that I would say that, um, was a principle and that I continue to stand by and I kind of touched on this with working with Farlara was as much collaboration as possible, you know, and to say, we're not in competition, we're in collaboration. And that was true with other churches too. You know, we met Sunday afternoons and I was really clear, like I am not trying to, take your parishioners. But if they want to come here on Sunday afternoon after being at your church Sunday morning, that's great. Well, that's if you'd thing. all like to come together and like bring the meal, that's yeah. great. <laughs> you know. Well, that's the thing. When you're not pursuing bigness, you take away the incentive to like sheep steal. So like, right. yeah, like I have, I have felt that very much that there's very much a spirit of collaboration because the idea was never to get big. So I, I don't need your people. I just want to care for care for my people, if I can use that term, <laughs> you know, like the congr- the community in which I find myself, I'm just trying to care for them. I want to help you care for care for the congregation that you're responsible for. So I totally agree. It's a very different 
it's a very different tenor and tone, which is a very welcoming and inviting space to be in for those who are dreaming about setting out on this on this course like you're not going to find a bunch of adversaries you're going to find a bunch of allies and that, i i think that's one of the really cool things yep. we're all really trying to support absolutely and i think the other piece with that and i get into the sum in the book is um the difference between as a pastor as a clergy person thinking that the congregation are the people that come through your doors on sunday morning or thinking that the broader community is is your congregation, is your parish. And that's something that felt very clear to me is that I was, it was not just the people who were there for worship. You know, it was the people who came in, the preschoolers that came in and, you know, gardened and the college students who did internships with us and, you know, the people who were in outdoors and just come and hang out and also the business owners in the area and the, you know, people who were the other congregations. So that it was, it was about, how do we be a life-giving spot in this community? How do we be a place of that interconnection? And how do we be a place where people are reconnecting with each other and their food and, and if they want to with God, but that it was not, it was such a broader definition of church. And I do think that that is it's certainly on my heart and I see it reflected in other places as well, that the future of church is a much broader definition and that it is, you know, the subtitle of the book is Finding Church Beyond the Walls. And um, that is both to say, yes, I think we do need these expressions of church that aren't in traditional buildings, but it's also a call for those of us who are, you know, now serving churches that have sanctuaries with walls, that we are all still called to be the church. Exactly. Beyond the walls. Mm -hmm. and, And to find the sacred spaces and the, and the sacrality of other human beings so seeing the image of God in one another and, and working with our system and with our, the fabric of our community to be caring for people in body and mind and spirit um, in the community. I want you to take off your, your, you know, sort of pastor or theologian's hat. And I want you to put on your writer's hat. Okay. Was there anything you discovered about yourself, about God, about the church, as you were writing this that you hadn't discovered when you were pastoring this church? I'm interested in the process of your, your experience of actually sitting down and writing the book. Was there anything you discovered in the writing of this that was different than in the work of actually doing it? Hmm. You know, it was such a gift to me to be able to write the book after. So I, I transitioned out of the Garden Church at the end of 2017. And then I started writing in those next, kind of like the next year and a half was the process of writing. And um, for me, it was very healing because it was, it was hard to leave. And oh, sure. there was a lot of, a lot of loss in that. Um, it was right and good. And it was, I think it was of God, but it, it, it was, it was hard. So there was something about um, the process of writing that just for me personally helped me in the transition. Um, and I think the interesting thing about writing and storytelling in general is we only tell a tiny slice of all that was. And so I noticed that I was inclined 
to tell you all the good parts, you know, and tell really? all the like happy stories. And it was such a success. And I was like, it was great, you know? Um, and my editors were really good at pushing back and saying, yeah, but how are you really feeling about that? And how, uh, like, like you said, that was a hard day, but what was that really? What was that really like? Um, and and so I think one of the things the process did was to help to um, to nuance and deepen my own my own stories about that experience, and to try to hold it in a more um, vulnerable and and compassionate way. Of yeah, it was amazing and beautiful, and it was ridiculously hard and exhausting. <laughs> And, and both of those were true. And I might've not been always willing to admit that during it, but in the process of writing, I had a space to be able to, to hold that even for myself, to hold that space for myself to say that there, there were, there were struggles. So one final question I want to ask, and I don't want to, we didn't want to overdo this interview with this because we're all sick of coronavirus, but that said, we are in the middle of one of the most unique seasons of our life and certainly of the church's life, at least in the last century. And so I'm curious, is there a way that this book and the way that, the way that you are thinking about the church of the next generation and trying to share that with the world, is there a way that it uniquely speaks to a pandemic world? Yeah, you know, this is a question I've been thinking a lot about because it's um, a new adventure to be launching a book in general. This is my first book, and then suddenly to be launching it in the middle of this pandemic. And I, I, I don't want to force it, <laughs> um, force the connections. But as I've been reflecting on it over these last two or three weeks, um, I think there are a couple of things that are are um, that are there and that are that genuinely connect. The first one is just this idea that we continually need to be reimagining church according to our context, but also according to being faithful in this generation and, and using our, our traditions and our, the strength of our, of our liturgy, of our theology, of our traditions over time. And so while it might seem like, well, what is, you know, doing church outside in a garden have to do with doing church on zoom I actually am more and more seeing the overlap of, again, it's not the same format, but it's some of the similar questions that we ask, which are, well, what is the rhythm of our liturgy? What are the things that hold us? One of the things I've really been encouraging um, clergy to do and doing myself in the worship settings that I, I'm leading right now are, is to figure out how can we bring some of the, the key elements that are familiar in our worship services. So is there a prayer that always gets prayed? Is there an order? How do we continue some of the rhythm of our church and our liturgy in these virtual settings? Um, and that was true at the garden church. People would often ask me like, well, you know, the liter like the worship service must be like super creative. And I was always kind of like, I'm not sure what you're getting at there, but yeah, um, <laughs> I totally agree. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew what they were getting at and I'd be like, well, uh, we have an invocation and we have some scripture and a song. Our, our liturgy was very, very um, traditional and, and basic, if you will. And yet it was for that context. 
So some of the things that we did in that context is during the invocation, we had to unpack the basket, as I talked about earlier, and, and all the things. We also instituted hand washing before the meal, and but before communion and then, and then meal. There were things that were contextually important. And I think that that's something that we can learn and think about, you know, when you're thinking about doing worship online, not to start from scratch and say, let me create a whole new worship service, but to say, what is our regular worship rhythm? And then how can we do that in a different context? Um, so that's one piece that I think is, is transferable and relevant in that way. The other thing is just this connection of how our food connects us to everybody and to the systems. I mean, this is something Sam, you and I talk about a lot, like foods that thread that we pull on. And I see so many conversations and I find in my own experience that um, there's a heightened awareness of who's growing our food, who's transporting our food, who's selling us our food, who's maybe bringing us our food to our door or walking around the store for us, that all of the the pieces and the touch points of our food um, really do connect us. So this invitation to be reconnected to our food, reconnected to the earth, reconnected to each other, reconnected to God, I think comes onto kind of a different focus in this time where it's suddenly being brought to light that those are connected in a way that we maybe weren't it's always been true, but maybe we weren't collectively seeing it in that way before. Yeah, we actually can learn something in the absence of a thing. So as we're as we're sort of missing community or missing the ability to gather around tables, we're discover we're discovering just how important those connections that community really is. That's right. Yeah, and I think that one other thing that I um, see as a connection point, and I and I hope is, you know, I we mentioned briefly earlier about that icon of the tree of life and this image of the tree of life at the end of the book of Revelation, this heavenly city descending. You might talk about the kingdom of God or peaceable kingdom, whatever words you, you know, one, one might use. But I think that as we're going through this pandemic time that we think about, you know, what's on the other side, it's not just to think about, can we get through this and get back to normal? But how is God transforming the world through this? How are we learning and growing and how are we going to come out of this transformed and changed individually and collectively? And I think that that's a, that's a role that the church has in the broader society. And I think that has to do with how we treat one another. It has to do with how we engage these various systems. It has to do certainly with how we grow our food and how we engage the food systems. Um, it has to do with what, how we love our neighbor and I believe that God is God is with us in all of this and that God is always striving to bring good and care and transformation and change out of hard things. But then it's on us too, that it's really on us individually and collectively. Are we going to be changed by this time? Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that stories like Keep and Tell and the Garden Church and Black Church Food Security Network and so many uh, Plain Song Farm, so many of our c- colleagues who are already working to work at this intersection of food and faith and ecology and theology, that we take this as an opportunity not to say like, hey, we knew all along, but more to say, okay, here's an opening for us to more broadly be thinking about these important connections and how can we collectively and how can the church lead 
in in creating the society and the world that I think many of us long for. And while things are crumbling, it's this opportunity for something new to grow. We have yep. to think about the whole compost heap thing, right? Like uh, a whole chapter about compost. <laughs> whole, you know? com- of course you have compost. <laughs> of course I do. It's my, it's my thing. Yep. I love the compost. Yeah. None of us in a million years would wish to have our first book come out in these circumstances. But I, the, as I continued to read the book and saw this virus kind of moving in our direction um, and then thinking about what this book was saying, I think, I, I, I think for those who engage with it, there's a real, there's a real callback to, uh, to, some, to some real core values um, in, in terms of our faith communities and how we think about not just faith communities, but as you've already said, you know, our neighbors, healthcare, food insecurity, um, even, even race and, and some of the other issues that we always seem to, the conversations we seem to find ourselves in as a result of food. And so I think in this time where it does feel like this time almost feels like a forest fire where there's this real cleansing and getting rid of some of the brush that is underneath so that the stuff that really needs to grow back up will be rediscovered and given some space to emerge. Um, and I, 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 I just want you to hear from your co-host how important a contribution that I think this book can and will be, even though, again, none of us, because we all love you and want this to succeed, none of us would wish this on you in a million years. But I think there is a space where the spirit can do something really powerful with this. And so it'll make great quarantine reading. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And I, I hope that it can serve and I hope that it can can be a, a good word and an inspiration to to keep reimagining and to keep reimagining what does it mean to be church and and to keep faithful to the church. Um, you know, I think there are many people who have given up on church over the years for many good reasons, and for I, I just personally can't give up on it. <laughs> I still believe in it, and I think that um, you know, at a time like this. Uh, there's an invitation. There's an invitation to say, okay, like you said, like what, what needs to fall away? What are the parts of our systems and our, you know, what are the parts of our traditions that have been holding us back and that are not helpful? And, and what's at the core? What does it really mean to love God and love neighbor together? And, and to, to lean into that and to lean into the, those well-worn prayers of our grandparents and our great grandparents and our traditions and that that sustains that and that um you know i think that has been true over generations so like the the church will persist i believe that and if we uh we want to be on board with that (laughs) then we can be be part of that of bringing it in in a new way and um and be fed and feed others Mm. Nicely done. I like how you write. <laughs> like that little turnaround. Yeah, it's almost like you should be a writer or something. I am going to speak for our audience and say the reason every single person who's downloading this and listening to this is doing so because you have contributed something positive to their lives and continue to challenge and encourage others in this journey that we're all we're all working on tangentially. And so I am going to encourage our listeners to find a way to give back in some way by helping support you, helping get, get the word out about the book. Um, this of course means buying the book. Um, and so, but I know that things are not normal. Like it would be one thing to say, run down to your 
your local independent bookstore and buy it or get it off of Amazon. I mean, shoot, even getting things from Amazon these days is a bit, a bit of a challenge. And so are there ways that folks can take meaningful steps to support you and to support the release of the book in the coming days? Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, Sam. And I appreciate the support from, from our listeners already. It's really so, so powerful to see this community of conversation that um, is, is out there. Um, yeah, so it, it is my best understanding that my book actually has been physically published, which was a bit up in the air. Um, it is unclear as of yet whether it um, will physically get to distribution sites, depending on how things go in the next few weeks. Um, but a couple options. I mean, you certainly can pre-order on Amazon, and my hope is that, that will get it to you eventually, maybe by April 21st. Perhaps. Maybe later. We'll see. Um, I also would commend to you bookshop.org. It's a new um, website that is a B Corp that's partnering with local bookstores and gives actually, a, a, it's an online portal. So you can order the book online and it will be shipped to your home. But they give back to local bookstores, which in this um, season feels particularly important. It was important prior. Um, so um, I really, I, I commend that as an, as an option. Um, some local bookstores are still open and are starting to ship. So um, check with your own local bookstores and it's possible that, that that might be an option. It is available on all the platforms. So local bookstores do have access to it if it physically exists. Um, the Kindle book should be released as well. So if that's a way that you read. And um, thanks to our good friend, uh, Derek and Jason, who have agreed to do the virtual editing. I am working on an audio recording right now. I turned my closet into a sound recording room. <laughs> Not <Awesome>. ideal, but <laughs> we're, we're doing our best. Um, we had grand plans for, for a, a real, real studio, but we're, we're doing our best. Um, so eventually, we hope around the release date, there will also be an audio version that will be available on Audible. Um, so those are some options. And I, of course, um, people are welcome to follow me on um, Facebook, Rev Anna Wolf, or on Instagram at Rev Anna Wolf, or on Twitter at Anna Wolf. And um, feel free to, to share things from there as well. Um, another thing to let you, our listeners know is um, that there will be some materials for book studies. And I know a lot of people are looking for the ability to do book studies online this spring. Um, and I've not actually announced this yet. So I'll announce it first here, <laughs> exclusive on our podcast, that I am offering that if a church wants to do a book study, and if you sign up before some deadline that I'll put out there, um, that I will Zoom or Skype into your first study for a few minutes and give a personal hello and Q&A. So um, I know a lot, of, a lot of book groups are suddenly online. So that makes it so that I, could, I can visit in that way. There'll also be some online book launch events as of transitioning um, the in-person events into online ones. So, so our listeners are most cordially invited to join in those as well. The first one will be with Plainsong Farms um, founder, our good friend, uh, the Reverend Maria Love Parish in April. So we'll make sure to put those on the pod links as well. 
Excellent. Very good. And, uh, and I'm going to be posting um, some promotional material via our podcast uh, so, social media out, outlets. And I would love to challenge our listeners to drive that up to at least a hundred shares. That would, that nice. would really do it. I know. Look, let's, let's just go ahead and do it. It's not like we're doing anything else right now. Uh, we're all sitting on Facebook anyway. Y'all, y'all can hit share together. 250 of us can hit share a hundred times. All right. So that's, that, that's what I'm saying. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure that. That, that gets out as well. Well, Anna, I, I want to say thanks for being willing to be a guest on your own pod. Um, and and not, not only for being on the pod, but for just sharing yourself and your story and for continuing um, to to be a pastor and an encourager and a challenger to all of us. Um, and so we are cheering and praying this book forward. Um, and we really look forward to the impact that your person and, and, and your story will have hopefully across the country. And so thank, thank you so much for the conversation. Well, thank you, Sam. It was a very, it was a new experience to be interviewed by my co-host, but I couldn't ask for a better co-host as we know, and I appreciate the conversation and I appreciate your support and the support of our listeners and my prayers are with, with all of us as we figure out what it means to be church in this time. Cool. We'll talk soon. Okay. Right. Thanks, friend. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.